Timothy, 1 Timothy, it's toward the end of your New Testament, so toward the back of your Bible. And uh, we I just finished a series from 2 Corinthians uh, that was authored by Paul to the Corinthian church. This letter is also authored by Paul, but specifically to Timothy, who is pastoring the church at Ephesus. And well, I'll give you a little background in just a minute as, we, as, I, as I begin if you found 1 Timothy in your scriptures, I would encourage you, if you would, and if you're able to stand as we read the word of God together this morning, the opening seven verses of this, this pastoral letter to a, another pastor. This is what the word of God has to say. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my child, in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different gospel, excuse me, any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. One of the the difficult things, I don't know, I shouldn't say difficult, one of the challenging things of any preacher, for that matter, Sunday school teacher as well, uh, is choosing where to go next. I, l- I love preaching through books because some of those questions are answered for you. So next Sunday, no surprise, I'll start with verse 8. Uh, but as I finished up uh, 2 Corinthians, um, as, the, as the weeks approached where that final sermon was coming, I, I just began to pray and, and think and ask the Lord where we needed to go next as a church. And of course, uh, from, a pastor, uh, from a pastor's heart, part of my thinking and praying process is, Lord, what, what does the church need to hear? What, where are, where are the, uh, where would, where, where, how would we be best, best blessed by uh, the, the text that uh, I choose to preach from? So I want to answer that question first out. Why choose First Timothy? Well, to answer that, you need a little bit of a history Uh, um, lesson. In October of 2012, so almost almost 11 years ago, um, I received some very wise counsel by one of our church leaders. I had begun my ministry here at Central about six months earlier, in April of that year, and I was beginning to propose some initiatives and some changes that I thought uh, the church needed to undertake. So over lunch, I, I met with this leader and I began to lay out 
uh, the things I wanted to do and, and, the, and the reasons why I wanted to do them and those sort of things. And I explained that, that some of the things I felt like we needed to consider were some changes, some alterations to how we organized our church leadership. And specifically because I was concerned that the church leadership structure was not rightly ordered and, and I was proposing how we uh, might become more biblically faithful in that area. After listening to my reasons and my biblical support and the suggestions or thoughts of how we uh, should proceed from there, uh, this brother um, gave me two words, or g- gave me two responses. The first thing he said to me was, um, he said, Pastor, if at the end of this conversation, if you tell me that under the conviction of the Lord, you think this is where we need to go as a church, then I'll be the first one in line to, to help you and to assist you and to champion this. But then he gave me um, another word of advice, and uh, it stuck. He said, but, but, but here is my counsel to you. He said, I think what you should do is get in the pulpit and preach. I think you need to preach and teach and build some equity within the church of your faithfulness with the word of God and have opportunity to expose the church to a biblical understanding in these areas. And uh, when you've done that, then I think it would be a better time and a more wise approach to introducing these things to the fellowship. I took his counsel to heart and, uh, and did not advance any of the changes to our leadership structure uh, in those early days of ministry. And over the last 11 years, as the Lord has given me opportunity to serve as your pastor, I have endeavored, and I hope I have done just this, to preach and faithfully teach God's word, whether in this context from the pulpit, whether on a Wednesday night um, midweek Bible study context or even in other opportunities like connection classes and those sort of things where I've had the opportunity to teach and to preach and to, and to give you uh, good counsel in God's, in God's word. And I hope over these 11 years I've gained your trust uh, of one who is faithful and trusted with God's word and, and faithful and trusted with the leadership of the church. Then this summer, uh, I went to the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting in July. And uh, as I do every year coming home from that, uh, one of the, usually the, the first Wednesday midweek Bible study um, uh, that, that comes after I'm, I'm back from that meeting, I usually take that, that, that opportunity to, to report and explain to the church uh, some of the things that have been happening in, the, in our convention. And, and usually that involves just the areas of theology doctrine that we've been struggling with as Southern Baptists. And, and I explained on that Wednesday night in July this past summer that uh, the big issue for Southern Baptists is... Um, understanding the biblical, uh, having, recapturing a biblical understanding of the office of pastor, elder, overseer, and how we as Southern Baptists have not done well with, um, with that office. We've confused it with terms and, and, and offices that are, that are, um, that, that have confused the issue and have created a bit of a mess for us as Southern Baptists and, and trying to go back to what scripture says and 
and, and to be more faithful with that. And I stated in that, in that Bible study meeting that um, like so many other Southern Baptist churches, that our church was not rightly ordered in this area either. A few weeks later, I met with our deacon leadership and, and later with the entire group of active deacons, and I explained to them uh, thoroughly what the Bible teaches about church leadership and how we as a church uh, were ordered and where we were not rightly ordered. Um, and, and, uh, and I walk them through that. In fact, just before we go any further, let me define what I mean by rightly ordered. When I, when I say not rightly ordered, what I mean is that, um, that how we have organized our church and, and, and structured our leadership does not correspond well with a biblical model. Churches always are struggling with how do we take a biblical model and then how do we practically express that? There are some things in Scripture that are not that are not mentioned. So um, Scripture does not talk about having a, um, a building and grounds committee, and yet we have one. And so, you know, thinking about how do we be most faithful with Scripture, and then how, and then how do we uh, apply that practically to our, 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 uh, our leadership structure? And there's always a bit of a, a conflict there because sometimes we get more practical than we are biblical, and sometimes we neglect practicality, trying to be biblical. So there, there's that, that, that effort of trying to be most faithfully biblically, even while practically addressing the needs of the church. It's interesting, when I met with the deacon leadership, they, they remembered my desire to address these issues over a decade ago and the good counsel that I had received to preach and teach uh, on those issues and on the scriptures uh, before um, proposing them to the church. And we were in agreement that on the issue of leadership uh, concerning the church, that the, the time was right to begin to, to at least introduce these things uh, to the church. Then a few weeks ago, as I was preaching through 2 Corinthians, I, I preached a sermon titled Confronting Sin uh, from the 13th chapter. And uh, in, that, in fact, in the introduction of that sermon, I, I discussed the, the breakdown of a right understanding of church fellowship and the abandonment of, of faithful church discipline. And I recognized, even before I preached the sermon, that a church whose fellowship was not rightly ordered could not faithfully obey the commands of Second uh, uh, Corinthians 13 one through four. I want to read to you what I said in, that, in, the, in those opening uh, words of that sermon. I said, you may ask, why preach this passage if you know the church cannot effectively obey it? Faithful preaching holds up the word of God even when it exposes areas of inadequacies and failures in us. I cannot only preach the passages that, uh, that comfort. I must also preach the passages that challenge us to live more faithfully and obedient to God's word. Now, I want to be honest with you, and you need to, um, maybe this will help you relax just a bit. No church, absolutely no church, is perfectly rightly ordered. However, every church must have a heart to be as rightly ordered and faithful to Scripture as possible. Paul's letter to Timothy deals with many of these issues, and um, how to organize the church, how to, how, to, uh, how to deal with false teachers, how to interact with church members, and, and how to deal with leadership and organize leadership within the church. And so that's why I've chosen to, to move now to, first, uh, and, and to, the, to the letters of, uh, uh, to Timothy from, uh, from Paul, believing that uh, this word, these words will be helpful to us as a church as we think through some of these issues ourselves. So some background on 1 Timothy. 
Paul wrote these letters to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, and the, the letter of Titus at the end of his ministry and life. So as I was preaching through 2 Corinthians, Paul was really in the midst of, that was sort of the, uh, he was still very actively in his missionary work. Uh, but now to First and Second Timothy and Titus, this is the end of Paul's life and ministry. Um, he um, uh, was, uh, the letter was most likely written sometime between 62 to 66 AD. Uh, it's believed that uh, Paul was martyred in sometime on or before 67 in Rome. So obviously just before um, uh, his death there in Rome. In the opening words of this, of this letter, we, Paul refers to Timothy as his, as his child in the faith. T uh, Paul considered Timothy as his, as his son uh, in the faith, a close and precious relationship. Timothy was a gifted pastor. He was also a young pastor. And Paul had assigned him to lead the church there in Ephesus. The church needed leadership to correct, um, to, to correct and order their worship, to correct and order their, their doctrine and, and even their, 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 their leadership. It was a church struggling with the disruption and destruction of false teaching. And so these letters, first and second Timothy, are letters to the young pastor uh, with, with Paul's counsel to him on leading the church in proper worship and establishing proper church leadership. And as he writes to him, he instructs Timothy on the required qualifications for elder, pastor, overseers, and deacons, and gives counsel on confronting uh, false teachers and, and other congregation members in the church. And so in these opening words... I actually want to, to approach the passage or at least the passage that we read backwards. So I want to start with verses three through seven and then we'll come back and catch verses one through three. And really just want to share with you these two main ideas this morning from these opening words. And that is that first, we must be aware of, concerned with and on guard for the threat, what threatens the church which I'll explain to you in just a little bit, is the greatest threat to the church is, is false teaching. And then secondly, that uh, we should recognize and celebrate and honor the gift of elders and the work of, of elders in the ministry and the work of the church. So let's begin with uh, the great, what threatens the church. And I, I wanna draw your attention, beginning in the second half of verse three to, uh, to verse seven, the passage that we read this morning, where, where Paul says, um, he says uh, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So what threatens the church today? Well, the greatest threat to the church today are false gospels or false doctrine. So Paul's first instruction to Timothy after greeting, his greeting is to order, is for him to order false teachers to stop teaching. The root word here, you'll recognize. So the root word that is translated in the English Standard Version as charge is angelos. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because it sounds like angel, which is the root word from which we get our word angel. Angelos means to be a messenger. Angel means to be 
a messenger. Added to the, a prefix to angelos is the word para, which generally means to be beside or outside. But when you add these things together, the, the, the word there, para angelo, means to, uh, to command or to order. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, brother, you need to order, command those who are teaching false doctrine to stop. There are many things today that negatively challenge the church. Cultural changes challenge the church. Brothers and sisters, we're living in those days where we're watching the collapse. In fact, we're, we're at the back end of the collapse of cultural Christianity. If you're of a certain age, you remember a time when it was culturally, economically advantageous for you to be in a church. I remember days early in my ministry, I pastored a first Baptist church and when, and when it was election, local election season, all of a sudden I'd get some real faithful politicians in the church because they wanted to put on their signs and they wanted to put in their advertising that they were members of a particular church in town. But it was even then, as soon as the, the political season was over, I couldn't find them again. Well, brothers and sisters, advance that 20 years and now there's no more even concern in our politicians to pretend that they're church members. We have watched the cultural collapse of cultural Christianity and that has, that has been a negative impact upon the church. Government intrusion, we, we watched that with some draconian, oppressive decisions during 2020, 2021 with COVID. Of course, persecution. Historically, the church has known persecution. Add to that natural disasters, uh, pandemics and natural disasters that dispersed the church. I remember after Katrina reading about some churches in New Orleans that, that literally no longer existed because the congregation had to move away. Their homes were destroyed and, and so folks moved in and moved away to, to find housing. And so there were churches that prior to Katrina were vibrant ministries. After Katrina, nobody could find anybody who attended the church. Natural disasters that destroy church facilities. We've seen tornadoes and hurricanes and and fires, economic uh, difficulties, political conflict, internal conflict within the church. All of these things challenge negatively the church. But all these things, even though all these things pose real challenges to the well-being of the church, none of these things, but in all of these things, the churches have, uh, churches have found a way to thrive. So think with me here. In seasons when the church is celebrated, excuse me, in seasons when the culture celebrates the gospel and in seasons where, where the culture uh, reviles the gospel, the church has endured. Friends, listen, it is a negative thing to us to watch the collapse of cultural Christianity, but it's not a new thing historically. In fact, every word of the New Testament was written to a culture that did not love the gospel. The church has endured through times when the culture loved the church and when the culture hated the church. In moments when the government imposed itself on the church or when Christians endured great, great persecution, the church, in fact, usually thrives in those seasons and the kingdom is advanced. In moments of great natural disasters, the church has remained and the preaching of the gospel continues. So through pandemics and floods and fires and volcano eruptions and hurricanes and tornadoes, they have been part of this world since Genesis 3 and yet... The gospel preaching continues. The church remains even through all of those things. 
during moments of tremendous economic difficulties. Those, are, those have been historically times where the church built great ministries and even facilities, even with all the difficulties of their finances. In moments of political uncertainties, churches remained faithful to preach, have remained faithful to preach the gospel. When internal conflict arose and, and, and disturbed the peace, faithful churches responded with biblical correction and have endured throughout the ages. So those things are difficult, they're unpleasant, but they're not the greatest threat to the church. Hear me very carefully here. The greatest threat to the church is false teaching. We see these other things as frustrating, difficulty, difficult, diminishing, harming, fine, but the greatest danger to the church is false teaching. The hope of the gospel is only in the truth of the gospel. When you mess around with the truth of the gospel, you lose its hope. When you begin to alter the truth of the gospel, you lose its power. The salvation of the gospel is only found in the truth of the gospel. Therefore, any counterfeit of the true gospel is powerless, it is hopeless, it enslaves, and it's destructive. The great threat of false teaching is so great that there can be no accommodation or comfort given to it in the church. Listen to me, folks. It is such a tremendous danger. It is such an existential threat to the church that false teaching cannot be accommodated. It cannot be um, comforted. It must be eradicated from the church. False teaching must be opposed. It's why Paul says, charge, command that those who are teaching false doctrine stop. He didn't say go talk to them and see if they'll think differently. He didn't say go to them and see if they can correct things. No, he said you first thing out of the gate with writing this letter, Timothy, you must deal with those who are preaching and teaching falsely and command them to stop. Now, in, the, in these verses after verse 3 and to, and, and to verse 7, Paul gives some characteristics and some dynamics of these false doctrines. And I, I want to categorize them in, in two ways. And the first would be pointless controversies. So Paul identifies two areas of false teaching. Number one, uh, pointless controversies. And secondly, perversions of the truth. Now, friends, Satan is a deceiver. And like any liar, he works to make his lies appear to be truthful. This is the very nature of deception. A liar presents um, falsehoods as true and the deceived believe lies thinking they have believed what is genuine and true. If con men and scammers told you up front they were liars, cheaters, and thieves, you would not be easily defrauded by them. But they present themselves as trustworthy and telling you things that are true. In verse four, the Bible identifies that false teachers um, often give their attention to myths, endless genealogies, and speculations. Now, I characterize all three of these as pointless controversies. In verse 6, the Bible declares that such people have wandered away into vain discussion. 
That word vain there is translated. It, it, it means talk with has, which has no beneficial purpose and is thus idle and meaningless. Idle discussions, meaningless talk. Such teaching gives more attention to the assumed intelligence or cleverness of the teacher rather than the infallible, inerrant word of God. The danger recognized in verse 4 of such things is that it focuses on speculation rather than stewardship or good order from God by faith. Myths are lies and imaginations of men pretending to be the truth of God. Worthless genealogies are in pseudo-intelligent pursuits that attempt to find meaning in hidden truths beyond the revealed word of God. Now these things create a distrust of the word of God rather than faith and trust in the word of God. If someone tells you, well, you really can't understand the scripture unless you have this secret um, approach where you look for these particular genealogies or there, there have been throughout the generations, there's been a thousand uh, attempts of these. There, at one point there was, a, there was an attempt to say, well, if there's a Bible code and if you found these secret words and these secret letters and the secret order, then somehow you would come to secret truth. That's false doctrine, brothers and sisters. That are lies, those are myths. Those are the great threat to the church. These things create a distrust of the word of God rather than faith. Friends, God has revealed himself through Jesus and given testimony through the inspired, inerrant, infallible scriptures that we call the Bible. If you reject anything that, add, you must reject anything that adds to or takes away from the testimony of scripture. You must reject any teaching that attempts to add additional layers of revelation or secrecy to understanding God's word. Just as a side note here, I would very much encourage you to be very wary of anyone who begins to tell you that God told them to tell you something. Particularly when they don't ground that in scripture. Because generally it's a myth. Generally, it's a, it sounds spiritual, but it's really just the opinion of man. It's adding to the revelation of God that is not the revelation of God. So you have pointless controversies, and then you have perversions of the truth. Now, we'll speak more about this in the weeks to come, but for now, notice in verse 7, that the Bible identifies the, the, the false teaching of uh, perverting the truth uh, this, this type of false teaching is especially deceptive and destructive because it takes God's truth, something that the Bible says, something that God declared. It takes the, the God's truth, perverts it just enough to deny the gospel, but it still appears to be faithful and true. So it sounds right. They've got a few proof texts to make it appear right, but it perverts the truth just enough to deny the gospel while still sounding spiritual. Paul identifies the false teachers who pervert the truth as confident in their own teaching, even though it's wrong. He, he identifies that they do not understand the word that they are attempting to teach. In other words, they don't even understand what they're teaching, and they don't even understand the implications of what they are teaching. And that they are selfishly desire to be teachers without being first qualified to teach. 
The double damage of this type of false teaching is that it leads people away from the gospel truth and it encourages people to put their trust and their faith in a counterfeit teaching. In verse 8, Paul declares that the goodness of the law, when it is, Paul declares the goodness of the law when it is used lawfully. So look just one verse beyond what we read this morning in verse 8. He says, now we know the law is good. Here he's countering the false teachers who are perverting the truth of God and using the law to lead people away from the gospel. Friends, God's truth sets you free from sin and death. But every lie, especially lies that pervert the truth, enslave you to sin and death. John chapter 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had, who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Lies enslave and destroy. The truth of God sets free restores and heals. What threatens the church is false teaching. Now I want us to look back up to verses one through three because I I think we see here that the good gift, all things of God are good, every gift of God is good, the good gift of elders. So let me just read that, that, that text to you again. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. The gift of elders. Three parts of this gift I want you to see, and the first is the gift of being present with the church. Now, before I go any further, let me, allow me just to explain a term that I will give greater attention to later in this series. When the Bible, the Bible uses three words, mostly interchangeably, for the office of pastor. Now, that phrase, that title, you and I are probably most familiar with, pastor. The Bible uses three words to reference pastors. Pastor, elder, and overseer. As I'll discuss in later sermons, the title of pastor has become confused in our modern day. And in fact, oftentimes what many people mean when they say pastor is just somebody who's employed by the church. And that has caused some great confusion and some great danger of false understanding of the word of God. So to make it clear that I'm referring to the biblical office of elder, pastor, overseer, I will most often be using the term elder. Now, because pastor is the more common term for me too, I will probably slip and and use that term some as well. But I'm going to make a conscious effort to use the word elder. That will probably sound strange to your ear because that's not a word we commonly use. But just understand, we'll explain this more deeply and, and, and clearly later, that When the Bible uses elder, it means pastor. When the Bible uses the word pastor, it means elder. When the Bible uses overseer, it means pastor and or elder. It may be somewhat unfamiliar to you, but you will discover as I preach through these letters that the the phrase or the, the term elder is actually the more common usage in Scripture 
and that pastor is the least common used term in Scripture. The first blessing and gift of elders is that they are present with the congregation. Now, writing to Timothy, Paul says to him, remain at Ephesus. In order for Timothy to lead the church, he had to be present with the church. Now, this may seem to you to be overly simple and maybe so simple of a, of a reality that it doesn't need uh, to be said or elevated to, the, to a, 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 an individual point in a sermon. However, there is always a temptation for leadership in the church to grow distant from the congregation. Presently, there is a, a trend for very large churches to have main preaching, a main preaching pastor whose sermons are viewed by gatherings in multiple locations, and sometimes those locations aren't even in the same city. Now, that has been motivated out of um, and, and driven by the celebrity culture. So the idea that a well-known, very gifted communicator is the most important thing. And so it is a, a, a better thing to have a celebrity speaker that is, that, is, that is piped into multiple gatherings than to have a local pastor preaching from his, from his pulpit. It's driven by celebrity culture and a high value being placed on the quality of the speaker over the intimacy of the preaching elder with the congregation. Paul was a missionary, and the, the way Paul functioned was he would go and plant churches. And after those churches were planted and established, he'd move on to plant other churches. That's why we have so many letters from Paul writing back to the churches that he had planted. But, and, and, and even though these churches were blessed and instructed by his letters, he knew that the long-term health and growth of the churches were dependent upon faithful godly biblical elders there present with the church leading this is why he instructs timothy to stay put remain at ephesus this is why he gives instructions for 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 timothy uh, in in qualifications of raising up and selecting and calling out other elders to serve with him in order to lead the congregation the elders must be present with the congregation. I think it, listen, I think it is more biblical, more faithful, and more healthy for the pastor who pastors the church to be the one who preaches than the pastor who pastors the church being the one who watches somebody else preach. Now, the negative of that is that the local pastor may not be as skilled or eloquent or, or, uh, or gifted at preaching as someone you can watch on TV. But brothers and sisters, I think it is important for the one who comes into your home when things fall apart, for the one who challenges you over issues of sin in your life, for the one who comforts you when, when things are falling apart, also be the one who teaches and preaches to you from your pulpit. Even, thank you for that amen. Even if it's not as eloquent as a celebrity or someone more well-known who has a larger audience. The gift of elders is that they are present Secondly, the gift of elders is that they are engaged with the church. So Timothy was instructed to remain in Ephesus for a particular purpose so that he could command the false teachers to stop teaching. 
Timothy was instructed to engage with the church to actively uh, teach sound doctrine, to actively confront false teaching, and to actively, uh, actively leading the church to know what it should accept and reject. It's more than just being present. The elders must also engage with the church. Many years ago, uh, when I was pastoring at First Baptist Adel, um, I was new there at that ministry and um, I, I made an appointment to go visit one of the other downtown churches. The, the, our, our two congregations did a lot of community events together. We shared a lot of community responsibilities together and we also often did uh, a lot of things throughout the year together. I just thought it would be a good idea for me to go and meet and know this other pastor. I go and make an appointment. I, I, I meet with him in his office and it was clear from the beginning that he wasn't all that excited to meet me, but I, I didn't necessarily know why. I sat down with him in his office and I began to lay out some of the, the hopes and dreams and accomplishments that I, I wanted to, to accomplish and, and was hoping that we could work together. And he stopped me mid-sentence. And this is what he said to me. He said, you can do whatever you want, but I'm about six months from retirement and I'm just biding my time. Now friends, listen to me. He was present but he was not engaged. You gotta be both. You gotta be present and you must be engaged with the church. Elders cannot be passive observers. Elders cannot be disinterested pacifiers. But elders must engage with the congregation to lead them well and to defend the faith and the right doctrine. They must be present, they must be engaged and they ultimately are responsible for the church. The greatest threat to the church is false teaching. Thus, the greatest responsibility of any elder, pastor, or overseer is faithful teaching and faithful preaching. In chapter 4, when Paul gives Timothy the qualifications for other elders, pastors, and overseers that, that, that could serve alongside Timothy, among those qualifications are these. Must be able to teach and must not be new converts. Now, both of these qualifications point to the responsibility of the elder, pastor, overseer, uh, having the responsibility to oversee the faithful preaching and teaching of the church. A new convert hasn't walked with the Lord long enough to know what they don't know. Spend some time around somebody who's new in the faith. There's an arrogance about them. It's just, it's just part of being young and not knowing what you don't know. Don't be a new convert and, and be, must be able to teach. There would be no sense at all in having someone responsible for the preaching and teaching of the, of the word of God to the church who cannot teach the word of God to the church. In verse 5, Paul affirms that the church elders are under orders. The word he uses there in verse 5 is the same word used in verse 3, to love the church with a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. He, so, so he says, you command the false teachers to stop it, but we're under the uh, a command of God to love the church with pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. Elders are responsible for preaching and teaching the true and faithful gospel of Jesus Christ. Be present, be engaged be responsible for the church those are the gifts and the gift of elders amongst the congregation some of you will recognize what I'm talking about some of you in this room will have no clue what I'm about to tell you in December of 1975 a man by the name of Steve Sasson 
was an employee for Eastman Kodak. Now, just do like this if you know what Eastman, Eastman Kodak is. Do like this if you have no clue what I'm talking about. I got you. All right. He was an employee of Eastman Kodak. Kodak at that time was the largest manufacturer of film for still cameras and movie reels. At the time, their revenue growth was, was still climbing. It was an amazing story where that company had hardly ever known an, a year without increasing revenue. At that time, their, their, their growth was still climbing and showed no signs of slowing down. The company would reach $10 billion in sales in 1981 and its highest yearly revenue of nearly $16 billion in 1996, it w- with profits of $2.5 billion still in 1999. It was a money-making machine. But in 1975, Steve Sasson was working with a recently invented uh, thing called the charge couple device. And he created the first digital camera. The camera was the product of just a technical exercise and, 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 and it generated very little interest from the, the corporate um, decision makers of Eastman Kodak. It weighed eight pounds. With its toaster-sized body, it took 23 seconds to capture an image of 0.01 megapixels on a cassette tape. Some of y'all don't even know what a cassette tape is. (laughs) But you know what a digital camera is. The Kodak company did not see the digital camera as a threat to their company. And well into the 1990s, they were still giving most of their attention, research and development dollars and everything else to uh, the traditional film technology and development of traditional film. The last year, the company would turn an annual profit would be 2007. And by 2012, they would file for chapter 11 bankruptcy. It was a spectacular decline, made more iconic that they held the oldest patent to the very technology that caused their demise. They went from a company who could print money to chapter 11 bankruptcy while holding the patent for the device that ruined their company. Now, lots of articles have been written about how and why the company failed. And most often, the blame for the leadership's inability to see the threat the digital photography posed to their bottom line was that the profits had been so strong and so great for so long that the leadership of the company just could not imagine a day when people weren't buying and developing film. One of the great blunders of the Eastman Kodak Company was that they developed a digital camera. Well, It was a regular print camera that had a digital camera attached to it so that you could see what the picture that you took that you still had to take and had developed later. Why? Nobody bought it. But here's the reason why the company failed. When any leader begins to think that they are invincible and that there are no longer any threats, They stop defending and protecting what they have 
and have been, and have been given responsibility for. When you don't think that your life is in danger, you stop locking the door. When you think the threats have been neutralized, you let your defenses down. Corporate leaders of Eastman Kodak thought there was nothing that could threaten their bottom line. And so even as the threat to their very existence of their business was growing, they ignored it. That's true of any leadership. Friends, when the, when the church begins to think that the dangers of false teaching, unbiblical practices, or secular values are not threats, it will stop defending and protecting against them. Look around, brothers and sisters. Look around. There are many denominations today. There are many churches today that accommodated false teaching because they thought that the pews would stay filled and that the, 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 the trappings of their church would continue even while they let their guard down against the greatest threat to the church. When the, church regret, when, the, when the church stops defending and protecting against false doctrine, it is welcoming in the very threats that'll destroy it. When the church rejects the gift of elders or the, the elders of the church do not faithfully lead, the very thing that will destroy the fellowship will be welcomed in. Until Jesus returns, the church Faithful followers of Jesus and every elder must give great attention and effort to holding fast to the faithful teaching of the gospel. Be on alert to the threats and be thankful for what God has given the church to defend against them. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.